Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, veterinary professional school admissions, controversies, conflicts, and how can we make them better? This week on the Veterinary Viewfinder. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And this week, we're going back to the origins, back to the roots, back to the foundations of the veterinary profession. And that is admissions to veterinarian and veterinary technician schools. Like, what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? And where can we make this better? This week, we are going to dive into the controversies and some of the solutions that we have. But before we get into all of that, as always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm Dr. Cindy Courtney. And I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And welcome to fall, listeners. This is the time of year when we've got a clean slate academically in front of us. We have a calendar full of football games and all kind of school events. It's also that time when we have that new freshman class entering into veterinarian and veterinary technician schools all across the country. And Cindy, let's just get into what we're concerned about. Are we admitting the right people into the profession? Yeah, I feel like ever since I've been in veterinary school, there's been discussion surrounding whether or not we're letting the right people into the profession on on all ends. So I've heard discussion about whether or not some of the emotional or mental health challenges that some of our colleagues are facing has something to do with just who we're letting into the profession. I recently read an article about my alma mater changing some of their admissions criteria. They're no longer requiring the GRE for students who are coming into the school. Um, We know the application process is still very competitive, but it definitely brought up some questions for me as to what's happening around the country and how we feel about it. Well, what about you, Becky? What about from a veterinary technician perspective? Are we admitting the right type of student into veterinary technician school? Yeah, it's a it's a question we get a lot. And it's funny because the longevity numbers stay the same. The overall national average pass rate of the VT&E stays the same. And so I kind of have to wonder, uh, are we doing admissions right on our end? Well, if you're one of our regular listeners, you know that we are very interested in sort of the future of our profession. And like Cindy alluded to, during my 25 years active in the profession and really active in leadership for the past 20 years, this debate continues. And in fact, I think it's an infinite debate, right? Because we're always going to try to make things better. But sadly, as Cindy and Becky both have also emphasized, Things haven't changed that much. Now, Cindy, you mentioned that there was a recent article that highlighted some of the changes in admission to your alma mater. So maybe explore that a little bit more. Yeah, and I've kind of been seeing this ongoing process that's been happening from afar. So when I applied to veterinary school, it was definitely pretty academically focused. So you were really trying to prepare a an application that showed that you are a very strong academic candidate. I also applied to Cornell and Cornell, I think still actually doesn't even require an interview. So you don't even necessarily need to show up in person and show your ability to hold a conversation with someone Um, that was required at Virginia tech. But uh, now you know, you don't necessarily have to have your GRE scores. Now they have a even more involved interview process. When I went, there were just two interviews, a hot interview where someone knew your application. And there were about, I think, 
five people in the room who kind of knew about you and knew your application. And then you had a cold interview where there were two people who, who really didn't know what was on your application, just wanted to get to know you and, and see how you did with people you were completely unfamiliar with. Right. And, and Cindy, my experience uh, being administered or being admitted into the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine was very similar. We had a pretty robust interview process. It was very stress-inducing for many of us, but yet they did away with it. And to this day, they still don't require, an, a, as you mentioned, a live or hot interview. Now, in your opinion, do you think that the interview is more positive or potentially negative when it comes to admitting the right type of veterinarian into our profession? You know, I find it interesting because I think I've mentioned before on the podcast that when it comes to business interviews, we know that they can be notoriously unreliable and you really have to do interviews in a very structured way to make sure that you get reliable results because people can get stressed in a really high tension environment that doesn't necessarily reflect how they're going to act once they get into the routine of a day-to-day business. So I do think we should take some caution with that. But we are in a profession where we're generally dealing with people on an ongoing basis. So I I think it's not a bad skill to test. And in fact, and now that I live in Kansas, Kansas actually requires their students before they even go to vet school to have public speaking classes under their belt. And I like that. Now, Becky, you've you've sort of heard this, you know, Cindy and me, we both had this really kind of, you know, difficult, challenging interview process to, to get into our respective schools. What about on the veterinary technician side? You know, uh, is there any kind of requirement to be interviewed? What, what does it look like on your, your end of the profession? So I think this is an interesting point because it, it does vary as well for technician programs from program to program. And so I think there are a lot of programs that you can get into that are based on numbers. A lot of it is just based on prerequisites, first come, first serve. And then some of it is a little bit more intense with with interview processes. I do think from what I've seen, the retention rate in programs is better with the programs that we see that do more intensive, you know, vetting processes before they have the students come on board. Well, I will tell you this, uh, listeners and, and Cindy and Becky, I was lecturing at a vet school not too long ago. And of course, typically these things after lunch or after dinner, you know, we'll all get together with a group of the students, kind of chit chat. Mm-hmm. They'll pick my brain, I'll pick their brain. And one of the students, you know, said, So why did you choose this particular veterinary school? And one of the students at sort of, you know, an informal, casual dinner said, Well, you know, the other school, and let's just say that they were from a state that had another school, they required an interview. And so you could already tell that it was a barrier. It's like, wow, I didn't want to go through that hassle. You know, I didn't want to have to deal with the interview. And and Cindy, getting back to your point, this is a valuable, I would argue, an invaluable skill. So by eliminating the hot interview, are we potentially getting the wrong student? I think an interesting question is, you know, what do we associate specifically with the interview? So we, there are some people who just have very, very severe social anxiety around specific events versus in general. Um, and so do we want introverted people in our profession? Absolutely. There's some really, really great positions for people who are introverted. And we have some amazing researchers who are very introverted. I do think it is challenging to be in day-to-day practice and be extremely introverted. Um, you can be introverted and still find a lot of joy in practice when it's something that you're really passionate about. You can still get energy from that. And even if you're really introverted, you can have really great social interactions if it's something that really uh, lights your fire. 
But I do think it's a harder struggle and I do think it can potentially lead to more burnout. So it's something we need to be careful about. And again, I think um, we need to talk about whether people are getting prepared before that interview process for what's going to be involved. I don't know about you guys, but for my first job ever as a teenager, I had no idea what to expect from an interview. My high school was definitely not really getting me career ready. And I feel like even at that level, you know, are our, our schools, even before college, really preparing people for, you know, life and a career? I think it's such a good point. But then in the back of my head, it makes me think, then are we going to get the more sincere interview? Like if you right. haven't been yeah. taught to professionally answer questions and this is what they're going to want to hear and you haven't really been spoon fed the information to get you in guaranteed, quote unquote, right? Then you're going to have a more sincere point of view coming from the person at the other side of the table about why do you want to go to vet school or tech school? Why is this your career? I almost think that face-to-face time and that the opportunity to just feel out someone's energy is way more valuable than a GRE score. I, I guess I would kindly disagree with you there because yeah. I feel like public speaking and, and speaking to people you don't know is a skill. And it's very hard to express yourself genuinely if you haven't had time to develop that skill. Um, it's For me, it's like playing an instrument. If you've never been taught how to play that instrument, you might have really beautiful emotions that you want to express but if you don't know how to play play a violin, how can you express it via that instrument? If you have a really beautiful personality inside, but no one's ever helped you practice how to speak in public to strangers, it's a really scary thing. And so you might just come out blubbering your words and not be able to express that really beautiful person inside. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, it, 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 and I see your point for sure. I guess I just sort of think about it as is the ability to answer questions A, B, C, and D as opposed to do your best to put things in words and be as genuine as you can be. By high school, I think we've had enough opportunity to interact with people that we do at least have some verbal skills, but I definitely see your point. But I think being genuine is also part of the interview. So if you are giving an interview and you can't come across as genuine, that's also a failure in the interview, right? Well, and this speaks to the complexity of doing interviews okay. in the flesh because there's a lot of issues at stake. But I will leave us with one final concern. And this is actually where I have now landed after 25 years of being immersed in this particular topic. And that is, hey, Cindy, I think there's value, you know, but more importantly, we have to have these interviews conducted by trained interviewers. Because we know from all of the studies that if you really don't know how to assess what questions to ask, it's going to be less meaningful. And many times, in fact, my interview was probably a lot like yours. I had like a general practitioner just from the real world. I had like a professor, you know, I had like a just different people and none of them had been trained in conducting interviews and none of them had agreed upon, well, these are some of the criteria we're looking for. And none of them had a clear consensus on the outcome that they were looking for. So those are really important issues. So again, I know we could talk about this. It does, it breaks my heart. I think it's important. I think it has a role, but as you can see, there's a lot of work to be done. I'd like to move on now into the area that I personally have an issue with. And that is this whole concept around What is the minimum amount or hours of veterinary experience? More importantly, even what do they count as veterinary experience? So, Cindy, tell us a little bit about your experience leading up to it. And what do you think, you know, the process uh, could improve? Yeah, I'm trying to rack my brain to remember if animal experience was actually required. I think it was, but I don't think there's a set number of hours now that Virginia, Maryland actually 
requires. I definitely know it's a big piece of the admissions process still. So 40% is still based on work experience, community service, veterinary, and animal experience. So it's still definitely a big part of the application process, but I don't think there's like a hundred hour minimum or something like that. Well, most of the schools have gone to these arbitrary numbers. In fact, my alma mater, University of Georgia, has a 250 hours of veterinary experience requirement. That's about six weeks of working full-time. And that is distinguished from animal experience by the fact that you have to be under the direct supervision of a veterinarian. Becky, let's just put it out there. Is six weeks of working in a vet clinic adequate to prepare you for what you may expect in veterinary school, for example? So I, I think for veterinary school, uh, you know, probably, probably not. I think you're going to get a good feel what the day-to-day is going to look like, what comes in, what doesn't. From a, a technician standpoint, I, I don't think it takes very long. And and from what I've seen of, of sort of rapid attrition for that baseline group of people who are like, oh, wait, never mind. I didn't know there was going to be poop and blood involved. I'm out of here. Right. So it, it quickly calls them from the pack for sure. But I'm not so sure it gives you the long-term emotional, long-term mental game that you're going to be in for. Well, and Cindy, this is where I have a real concern. Is six weeks of working under veterinary supervision, as University of Georgia defines it, is that adequate to prepare you for this career? You know, do they really have a clear picture of what they've gotten into? So I don't think so. I wrap my brain around (laughs) the fact that when you go into human medical school, my I guess I just don't know that much about how much hands-on experience you walk into human medical school with. My my impression is not particularly much because right. I just understand that they probably wouldn't let you do very much. Right. And that's very different in veterinary medicine where I, I find that a lot of my colleagues had quite a bit of hands-on experience in veterinary medicine by the time they got to veterinary school. And I think that is so helpful for us. You know, for human medicine, you end up doing this really extended internship residency process. And I think that's necessary because, you know, you don't have any experience touching people before right, you actually right. go to medical school. So so I think that's something that's still really, really important. I also think for me, it was helpful in not feeling the need to go and do an internship and in the long run undercut my own salary and earning potential because I felt confident to walk into a practice and say, you know, I, I have some basic experience, at least being on the the assistant side of these ear cases and these skin cases and, you know, GDVs and things like that. So it was less scary. Well, Becky, I'd like to get your take on, on a slightly different twist to this question. And that is, okay, you see a lot of new grads as a veterinary technician. My concern is that because they, leading up to this, they worked maybe six weeks, let's say, at a vet clinic somewhere. Maybe they worked, you know, six months. It doesn't really matter. But there are trials and tribulations in daily practice that it's hard to get a beat on if you just sort of just loop in, you know, for six weeks or six months. Do you see students that graduate and and come into your clinics that you feel like they're going, this is the first time I've ever experienced this. And do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Oh my gosh. Yeah. the, The first one that comes to mind is a, an afternoon in the emergency clinic with a new graduate and our, you know, our, our first case came in of a dog not breathing. And she literally said, oh, my God, I don't know how to do CPR. And wow. I said, then move and I'll do it for you. 
real quick Ugh. and we'll we'll talk this out. It's not a great time for a training, but she panicked under pressure. Um, yeah. She got panicked it together. She's an amazing right. ER yeah. vet right now. Uh, absolutely. Right. But I, I remember thinking to myself, like, are you kidding me? This is not the time for this. And and how did you get here without feeling confident about a code? So, um, yeah, that's the first one that actually comes to mind. And the, I think the thing that comes to mind even more than that is when I see new grads who come out without the ability to diagnose without every single diagnostic in the hospital. And, and again, I think that comes from that lack of hands-on practical experience. When I work with veterinarians who say, oh yeah, I did assistant work. They generally say tech work and I kindly correct them. Mm-hmm. They did assistant right. work for four, five, six, seven, eight, 10, 20 years, whatever it was. Right. Those guys do a lot better in Excel and you see where that experience is of value. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because when you mentioned that specific case, I certainly came out of school knowing CPR, but my first code, I totally like just deer in the headlights. And I was lucky enough to have a technician with me who had done ER work. And, you know, we got through it and it was actually an employee pet who um, was an English bulldog that had laryngeal paralysis. We thought it was an anaphylactic reaction, but ended up just having a second visit to the vet, saw one of my colleagues and just got stressed enough in the hospital that he gave himself laryngeal paralysis again. Um, But, you know, she just sat me down and she was like, just take a breath next time. Just take a breath. But, but yeah, it's, you know, what I was surprised by is how much a leap it is. Even for those of us, you know, I had five years of vet assistant experience, you know, summers and things like that. It wasn't all full time, but, you know, just making that leap to being the decision maker I do not think there's anything that can completely prepare you for that. And that's one place I wish we talked about more is that you can have all the experience in the world, but you're still not going to ever be a hundred percent sure that the experience of being a doctor is going to be the right thing for you. And and that makes me think about the veterinary debt issue quite a bit because you can still end up on the other end of those four years and say, shoot, being this decision maker is not the right thing for me. And, And that's a big problem. And I want to get to the student debt thing in just a segment. Cindy, I want to get your opinion more more on this issue of life experience, clinical experience, and expectations. Yeah. One of the things that's discussed at you know the AVMA type of level in, in these meetings, you know, we'll get this this conversation started. And basically it's like the reason that we're having so much problem with the burnout, compassion fatigue, imposter syndrome, you name it, it they go back to this thing of saying it's poor expectations that these people that came into the profession with this 250 hours of experience really didn't know what they were getting into. And so we need to either expand or change or or somehow modify the lead up into the veterinary school experience. Cindy, do you think that lack of real world experience, hands-on, as you say, you know, both of us started out, I mean, since I was 15, this is all I've known. Um, should we require or encourage more of that to help overcome some of the psychological challenges that this profession poses? I'm kind of trying to not laugh out loud right now because I think for me, the the lack of life experience that contributed to my personal burnout was not lack of experience in the veterinary field. I, I knew so much about that. I knew about the long hours. I knew about the stress. I knew about working so hard. What I didn't know about was the life experience of trying to have a family and trying to have relationships and trying to be an adult and not be in school. Um, And at least in my experience, I feel like some of the people who adjust a little bit better are people who have had some of that life experience, not just more veterinary or more animal experience. I I guess that's what stands out to me. 
All right. Well, Becky, let me spin it to you then. So, so here we go. Obviously, life experience, raising a family, lots of challenges, lots of you know tribulations. But let's get back to this burnout. So, one of the things that I've seen in my own practice and hiring veterinarians, you know, over the years, decades even, um, is this: that they suddenly, when they meet failure, they lose a patient, let's say, or a client complains that they somehow think that, oh my gosh, you know, this is the end of the world because they've never encountered that before. You know, can can you speak around that? Because I know you've seen a lot of that in practice. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's intense. I think personal resilience is the first thing that's like just flashing like in my head are the words personal resilience and where mm-hmm. does that come from and how do you develop it? And and I also think there's that sense of internal confidence. And and I think you're right. Life experience, life experience. It's, it's what it comes to. Do I think you can be a successful and outstanding veterinarian and or veterinary technician without years in the clinic? Yep. But do I think it's an easier journey? Do I think it's a probably healthier journey, probably a long-term, more successful um, with the basic understanding of what you're coming into? Yeah, I think that too, if you if you have that time in the clinic. So, you know, if somebody doesn't have that time, I don't want to say don't go to vet school, don't go to tech school. But I do think that it is worthwhile considering putting in that time ahead of time because you're right. Four years, and I know we're going to talk about it, but however many dollars of debt later, it's not the time to be finding out that being the decision maker isn't for for you. So when you talk, Ernie, about encountering failure and then feeling like that that failure and not being able to be resilient against it leads you to that burnout or means that you're a bad vet, I also wonder how many of us feel like we had adequate role models, even if we were involved in practice for a while. Right, good point. You know, have we seen people who came up against that failure and were willing to be vulnerable enough to show us how they dealt with it? Or did they right. hide that failure? Or did they, you know, not put it put it out there into the light? Because I, I don't know about you, but I can remember maybe just one incident of failure uh, in the whole time that I was a vet assistant. And honestly, it was one of the most moving, inspiring moments that I ever experienced in, in vet medicine. And it taught me so much. I don't know, but Becky, have you experienced that too? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have. And I've experienced on both sides. I've experienced where I've seen failures happen and I've learned resilience and I've learned how to gracefully accept a situation because we, we learn by, you know, imitating what we see. Right. And then I've seen what Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to do and how I don't ever want to be and and how, you know, failure can result in a very toxic environment and how it can result in uh, the inability to accept personal imperfection and it spreads through the clinic and makes everyone feel like they don't have room. And we've talked about this before, but now everyone has to be perfect because the absolute leaders in the facility are showing that imperfection is unacceptable, at least on their level. So I think that there is a resilience level. Um, but this being said, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, so so what do we start asking about personal failure and personal right. resilience in your interview process, right? Now, those are the things yeah. people are being like, I don't yeah. know you and I can't open up about that. So how do you even measure that in a 18-year-old, a 24-year-old sitting right. in front of you trying to get into your program? Well, so far, the Veterinary Viewfinder Guide to Veterinary Professional School Admissions looks a little bit like this. Number one, we think that you should probably have some type of structured very well-trained interview process. Maybe it talks about life experience. Maybe it talks about practical experience. But we think that there's some value to actually sitting across from somebody and, as Becky said, reading that energy. The second thing that we believe is that practical real-world experience, and as Cindy said, life experience, plays a big role in your success moving forward. 
And now let's get into the other element, and that is student debt. Mm-hmm. Are we adequately preparing, educating, whatever discussing how much it costs to go to veterinary or veterinary technician school? Cindy, I'd like you to jump in and kick it off. Well, and I apologize. You may hear my dog barking in the background because, of course, the UPS guy showed up just in time. Um, <laughs> but I was Probably reading. Right, right. We got to have more books around here. So I was actually reading a blog I had written about this um, about three years ago on this very topic because I was, uh, when I wrote that blog three years ago, I had Googled how to become a veterinarian and looked at all of the pages on the the first page of Google because let's be honest, that's the only ones anyone's ever going to (laughs) read. And not a single one of them talked about debt or loans at all. Like none of them had it. And fortunately, that has started to to change a little bit. So now Vin makes that list and a couple of like the wiki how and things like that talk about how much debt is involved with getting into veterinary school and the importance of preparing financially. I still think all of them could be a bit more specific. We could get down into telling people, hey, this is the first year salary for a veterinarian. And we should be creating a plan so that when you walk out of vet school, you only have this amount of debt. And what is your plan for making that happen? Um, I do worry with that, that we might drive some people who would not otherwise be able to afford veterinary school out of the profession. But maybe that would also start putting some pressure on the profession to make education more affordable or for us to create more scholarships and, and hopefully move us in the right direction. So, Cindy, I love what you're saying. I agree. If you look into my alma mater's website, Georgia doesn't mention cost at all. Yeah. <laughs> and and I've sat in the rooms at these AVMA committee meetings. And, and look, student debt is a big issue and it is being taken very seriously. So I'm, I'm proud to work with, with some of those groups. But we will have a contingency of veterinary schools represented. And they will tell you to a person sort of what you alluded to, Cindy, and that is, look, if we start talking about how expensive it is, that's a barrier and we're going to suffer. Please listen this is a business. <laughs> we are here to make mm-hmm. money. And so, yeah, I think sometimes sweeping it under the rug is doing a real disservice because now those students right now that are in those freshman classes at veterinary schools all across the country, they are so filled with enthusiasm. They aren't thinking about $300,000 and how that will affect their life moving forward. I think we need to prepare them more prior to that first day of class. So, Cindy, what say thee? Yeah, and I think if you had before the mortgage crisis, if you had stood there and said, well, hey, if we tell people what these loan terms are really all about, we're going to drive people away from owning homes. Yeah, that would have been true, but we also wouldn't have crashed the economy. And you know, right. we're responsible for the future of the whole profession. And if we drive this profession into the ground economically, we're not going to be able to continue to support these vet schools. So it's, it's really in everyone's best interest that we keep the big picture in mind. And Becky, this is not isolated to veterinarians. Veterinary technicians also have the same pressures. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We know veterinary technician school, for the most part, is um, not nearly, I mean, obviously, nearly as expensive as vet school. But I think that you're right. We've got to be talking about personal finance, personal responsibility, helping, you know, develop that part of the education, whether you're a veterinarian or a veterinary technician. You know, and one thing that occurs to me you know, I know that there is a a wide age gap across the population from vet school to tech school for sure. Mm -hmm. When I taught in the vet tech program that I taught in, my youngest student was 18. My oldest was 55 in the classroom at the same time. 
And I know that that's more of a rarity in vet school. And, you know, it happens occasionally. But I think one thing that we have to be thinking about is for, with vet school, for the most part, we're talking about a population that can't even mentally encompass the idea of $200,000 worth of debt. Like their brain mm-hmm. just isn't even fully developed enough to be thinking and understanding something that they don't have that kind of experience with. So I, I think even when we're talking about it, we have to be a lot more practical and we have to be a lot more serious. And maybe part of admissions is, can you show a financial plan long term? So um, is it the responsibility of the colleges once you're in to help you develop a plan or before you get in to make sure you're going to be able to handle this? One of the solutions that we're starting to see is from VEN, the Veterinary Information Network. Uh, dear friends, they've done a fantastic job, but they have a an entire student debt center and they've got a, a simulator. So you like, uh, it's like, like a calculator online. And if you're listening today and you're that freshman and you're at Iowa or you're at Georgia or you're at Kansas State, I want you to spend a little time on that website because you really do need to understand every time when you take that student loan draw each quarter or semester, it's going to come with a price in the future. Yeah, I absolutely love that simulator. It's amazing. And for anyone who's confused about the complexities of the income-based repayment system, I can help walk you through that. I was so confused my first year out. I knew I was supposed to be saving money for eventual repayment of some of that income-based repayment. No idea where to start. They have a calculator for that too. So definitely check it out. If you know anyone who's interested in becoming a veterinarian, send them there. Um, I also, we should think about the value of the education that we're getting. When you sit down and you look at those numbers, think about the other things you could be doing with that money. I thought about going to Cornell and I thought, okay, look at the debt numbers. How many extra cars or houses worth of debt do I want to go into? Um, And Becky, you know, I think on the vet tech side, I, I know a lot of techs who also look into, you know, not just what they're paying for their education, but is it a school that's going to give them value for the education that they get? Because I don't know if you assume you've experienced it. Some techs who get an education, but they don't feel like they leave school with the practical skills to accomplish what they, they want to when they get into that job. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a little bit harder in our population to go to the school you want as opposed to the school you can. Right. Um, I don't know very many people who pick up and move across the country to go to a particular tech school the way veterinarians do to go to the school they're accepted in. So I think sometimes they're just handed. Um, But that brings us to a whole nother conversation about mentorship, which is that another podcast. Yeah. And I think that if you're listening today and you're, you are that freshman and you say, well, you know what? Incomes are going to rise that, that, that part of the equation is going to solve my problem. I hate to break it to you, but I don't think you can count on that. I don't really no. start start to see you know your salaries double over the next uh, you know ten years. I just I, th- I have a hard time making that case. And actually, there's evidence that shows that across medical professions, not just in veterinary medicine, but across medical professions, compared to incomes in general, the relative income is actually decreasing. Right. So just keep that in mind, guys. So our final veterinary viewfinder. Complete overhaul, reinvention of the veterinary professional school admissions process has to do with financial education and information. We think there needs to be a lot more transparency that schools should be taking the lead on this and, you know, not just saying, oh, we're going to help you get more loans, but actually say, we're going to actually help reduce your costs. And I know that seems counterintuitive and not against the capitalistic models that we're predicated on, but the reality is we need to help because, like Cindy said, if we run our profession into the ground, like the home mortgage 
industry, then we are going to be in real, real trouble. And I think that's these are things that are real. Well, you've heard what we have to say about the entire veterinary professional school admissions process. Now it's your turn. Tell us how you would fix this issue. You can connect with us at Facebook at Veterinary Viewfinder. Tell us what your admissions process was like. Is it the same? Is it different than the admissions process right now at your alma mater? Go ahead and take a look online and let us know. You can also get in touch with us on Instagram at Veterinary Viewfinder. Uh, if you're applying now, if you got into vet school, share your excitement with us. We'd love to know that you're listening. Uh, share your picture and we can give you continued advice as you go through your program. Leave us a review on iTunes. You can find us there at Veterinary Viewfinder as well. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. Until next time, keep on applying. Bye. 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 Jesus. <laughs>